Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss Isirians in Kyridian of the West Marches, a third-party product uh, created for 5th edition D&D. We're getting into Chapter 3, World Building. This is an absolute monster of a chapter. It is incredibly rich with information. I'm not putting money that I care about on us finishing this. Uh, But if we do, I'm running out and buying a lottery ticket because improbable things happen. Yeah, true. Uh, I, I, I don't I don't see us uh, getting all the way through, but you know, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, yeah. You know, mir- miracles uh, have have been seen, um, you know. Rocks so, have yeah. been re- reputed to hold in demons have split in half. Yeah. That's yeah. not a miracle. That's yeah. the other thing. But it's I mean, look, 2022, there was, uh, we take what we can get. Look, there was Jesus in that uh, that that grilled cheese sandwich that got sold on eBay. There's uh, there's Mother Mary in the tortilla. I mean, there's you know, it could it could be there's all kinds of miracles. Okay, Sam, I will have you know that all grilled cheese sandwiches are holy. That's true. Yes, yes, they all have a little bit of Jesus in them. It's gr- grilled Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, so chapter chapter three. Is called world building, which is why it is such a damn big chapter. It is so big. It if, is so. If the book had been just this chapter, it would have been a perfectly good purchase. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 also very good. So it starts out by talking about the town, and remember that the idea here in this West Marches uh, framework is that the town is the place where the every adventure begins and every adventure ends in the town. Yep. And you, you have no to. adventuring occurs in the town. Yep. Uh, there is a sidebar for when, for one kind of dramatic thing that can happen in the vicinity of the town without actually leaving. But uh, it's intended as sort of a, a variant of play, not the core mm-hmm. of West Marches. Right. It is it is a singular event, not something that is going to be a recurring or uh, consistent event. Yeah. But but the town is the only place where you can log out of right. of the game, right? Right. Right. Um, On purpose. So it's it's meant to be the the idea that um, you know, leaving town and going out adventuring is very very dangerous. And so it's very very important in this framework to make sure that when the party arrives back in town at the end of the adventure, they are safe and they know that they're going, you know, the thing is if they, if they know they're going to be safe when they get to town, it actually gives a motivation and a drive and an impetus to have them travel all the way back to town because they know they'll be safe. They'll be able to uh, store their uh, loot that they got. They'll be able to trade and sell loot. They'll be able to buy new goods. All of those things are very important and they're safe when they do it. There's no chance of them being attacked while they do it. If that's not the case, then there's no real impetus for them to go back to town. And going back to town every time is really important in this style of play because remember that the entire thing relies upon you having singular adventures where your group is going to consist possibly of different people every time because that's yep. the whole point of West Marches. Yep. It puts you in position to cycle the roster. 
it right. causes you to spend time traveling, which does things like increase risk, introduce you to the uh, wilderness hexes, uh, cause the timeline to advance mm-hmm. so that uh, dungeons can restock and things like that. Right. And storylines can move forward uh, in as much as there are storylines. You, you got to kind of know what I mean by storyline. Anyway. Yeah. We, that's next chapter. Yeah. And so, and so th- this chapter, it sort of reminds you of that and it tells you why it's important again. Uh, and then it gives us a little table here uh, with some town types. It points out that a town doesn't actually have to be a town or like a, a large city. It could actually just be a single building that is a refuge, right? Or it could be a very small town with maybe just an inn and a stable and two houses and a little temple, right? And that's it. Um, but yeah, wherever it, it is, it's the safe space. It could just be a single bonfire at Firelink Shrine. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. As long as it is the same place that they go to every time, right? So when we say it can be a shrine or a single bonfire, it doesn't mean it's anywhere they camp. That's not what we're saying. It's not just anywhere they camp. It is specifically a place. And in terms of location, this place should be either right smack dab in the middle of everything so that they can journey in any direction for a very far distance, or it should be at the edge. If you were to imagine the map of the entire area on one piece of paper, the town should be at the edge or in one of the corners so that you have the farthest distance away. And then the party and the players in the West Marches game can actually have an idea of, you know, the more, the farther away you get from town, the more dangerous it's probably going to be because it is more unknown. And so therefore you can gauge the difficulty of any given quest or task a little bit based on how far away they are. And so it reminds us of all that. It actually said, a lot of this stuff early on in chapter one, um, but it's reminding of uh, us of this now because, of course, this being the world building chapter, it's trying to point out that um, you know that you're, you still must be mindful of those things. We're not forgetting the things we talked about in chapter one and two. We're now bringing in those things and and setting them again as the backdrop to the future things that we're going to talk about in this chapter. Yep. Um. And moving from town types, we get the individual buildings in the town. Um, these are just places to help you describe it. Uh, ideally, they also provide services that the players actually use. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all of them are services that my players are going to want to engage with in the narrative. Right. Uh, but that's going to vary from group to group mm-hmm. to a significant degree. Right, um, but, and it points out that yeah. depending on the type of town or or whatever that that you have, of course, those buildings are going to be different, right? Um, if you're if you've set up your West Marches game to be a very very low magic and magic is not common at all, then of course you're not going to have a magic shop, right, in right. in town. Um, on the other hand, if you if you have a world where no one rides horses. Uh, there is, there are no such things as horses as mounts, then you're not going to have a stable, right? Um, you still might have a blacksmith, but their job is not to make horseshoes. Uh, their job is to do other things, right? So uh, it, it points out, it, it kind of sort of halfway says, look, you know, make the town what you want it to be. Just recognize that it is the safe space, but you only want to put the things there that are useful and not too much else, right? Yep. And I, I wish a little bit that 
there was some way to level each of these up because that's such an engaging part of uh, games like uh, Darkest Dungeon that, that inspired this book uh, is getting to improve the town, mm-hmm. not in a way that there's action happening in the town, just that a big part of what you're achieving in your adventuring is making this place cooler. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, and, and so maybe and, you and can not- also add on services, you know, it's mm-hmm. got, let's say one D six of these buildings at the start of play. And then you can pay to have more than built. That could be cool. Right. Well, and you know, the other, the other thing that uh, it also, um, the, um, the idea of, improving the town is is kind of special because it actually also makes the PCs have a place, right? Yep. So it turns it into not just a safe space, but our safe space, right? This is where we identify with the place that we live and therefore we care about it. And in in a rare instance of caring about um, the, the the family and the NPCs and the town in D anD D, there's no danger of the DM taking that away and using it them taking that as away as motivation. Right? There's no danger of oh well, I can't really like that town and feel a part of it because I know if I do that, the DM is going to burn it down. Or you know, I yeah, don't want sure. my you know I don't want my family alive and all living there because uh, if if I do, then uh, to, to motivate me, the DM is going to make you know my, my sister get kidnapped or something and that that you know so talking about why that's a bad idea is a different topic but uh because the rule in this particular type type and style of game is the the town is untouchable basically right that means that you can have players with pcs that come from the town that were born there that live there that know people there that love people there and that when they come back there it's home to them and that's okay to have that because they know it's not going to be destroyed yep and no, they're going to then they're going to cool. want to improve it because of that right like it's back to your point of improving it would be a great thing because that's what they're going to want to do if they're going to go out and they're going to risk their lives to get lots of resources they're going to want to try to use those resources to improve the town that's certainly my premise, right? Yeah. Uh, fifth edition has been critiqued uh, largely correctly for not giving you enough to do with all of that lucre. Mm-hmm. And leveling up a town is a great one. Right. Yep. Um, it's something I've been planning to write about in my blog. Um, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, so anyway. You, you want to move on? I, I I've said what I want to say about this. If yeah. you have more you want to say, we can no, uh, not particularly. I, I think it's good to, as a reminder at the beginning of this chapter. It's well placed. Um, it, it's not too long. I do. I do. I'm like you. I, I wish they would have talked about maybe improving this, but um, you know, it, it's not. It's it, that's not uh, such a horrible critique because what he, what is here is good. So that's fine. Sure. Yeah. Like the next topic is going to be one that I'm I'm quite sure that my dear co-host is is going to have a lot to say about. I, I have advertised it as such, and I uh, said what I meant and meant what I said. So this is magic item crafting. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, one of my first major jobs in role-playing gaming was in video games, making the MMO Fallen Earth 
where I wrote crafting systems. I wrote the game's crafting progression uh, for all of these different trade skills. And that was the main thing I did for more than a year of, of work there um, in the almost four years I worked on Fallen Earth. And so I'm very attached to the idea of, of crafting. I also have really enjoyed crafting in um, a bunch of other video games, including MMOs. Um, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about why it's hard to make crafting fun on a tabletop game. Um, and that's because crafting is lonely fun. Uh, crafting mm-hmm. is at its best when it's something you can hop into the game and do when the rest of your team isn't there or when you don't really feel like engaging the major challenges and you want something that is lower pressure. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to make this work, but that's that's what crafting is about. Um, it lets you set goals for yourself that you can check off. And tabletop gaming doesn't handle lonely fun for the player very well at all. Lonely fun for the DM, yes, absolutely. Uh, lonely fun for the player is a very what now kind of space. And uh, let me let me point out mm-hmm. that uh, that lonely fun for the player, which is so rare, part of the reason that games like Classic Traveler, where you could die in character creation. Part of the reason that that is so well known and so so fun, and the reason that has stuck around for a very long time, is because that is the lonely fun for the player. Because you can sit there and roll up characters very quickly and easily, and also in a fun way. Because you're finding out, okay, are they going to die? Right? Like there's risk even to just building the character, so it makes it into a singular lonely fun type of activity. Also, this speaks to um, the reason why uh, there has been a rise in character building as mm-hmm. a as a as an a central activity to D and D, for example, in third edition, absolutely. Um, you know, when you sit down and you are going to build a character, you are literally building a character. And a lot of times, because of the way the game is structured, you're trying to sort of project out. You're not just building a first-level character. You're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm projecting out to 5, 10, 15 levels, and I want to make sure that I can have all of the requirements that I will need, make sure I can achieve those so that when I get to the point where I get to choose a prestige class, I actually qualify for the one I want, and I want to make sure that I structure my backstory and the rest of my my pc so that that makes sense to you know so there's all of those sort of elements that even if you're making a first level character you might be thinking about all of those once you've played the game a little bit you realize that those things are really important later on that's that's part of the lonely fun for the player and i know several people who for years they just made pcs they never got to play a game (laughs) right they just made they didn't have a group or whatever they just made pcs it was really fun um, yep. Not as fun as playing necessarily, but when they needed that, that sort of uh, little pull, right? When they had that little, the itch that needed to be scratched, that's what they would go do. But you're right. I don't think that it is an activity, the lonely fun for the player, that is supported very well, even in and, third edition where you you know the character building is is all a thing. But well, well, you know, right. It's not so supported activity. So I absolutely agree with your assessment that character building and theory crafting and all of that constitute lonely fun primarily for players. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's absolutely true. I 
I think it's harder to figure out how to fit crafting into that because uh, tabletop games don't really have comfort with letting the player go out and accumulate game resources, you know, crafting materials uh, without direct engagement from the DM. And you don't really want to give that player more of the GM's time than other people get. That's not really, it's not really comfy. Um, Mm -hmm. In theory, uh, downtime actions can be used in this sort of vein a bit. Um, But in my experience, most players want to just handle their downtime actions at the table. So the lonely fun doesn't happen. Right. Um, So I don't have an answer there necessarily, though it certainly does suggest to me something like uh, ending sessions by uh, writing down the list of materials that the crafter can readily gather and letting them sort of puzzle over that and see what they can turn that into, uh, maybe with some high-trust dice rolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, between now and the next session, if it becomes a little like uh, almost a kind of mental Tetris, I need to turn, you know, uh, three of this thing and three of this thing and five of this thing and twelve of that thing into as much cool stuff as I can manage. Mm-hmm. What does that give me? That 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 could be fun, right? Um, right. So moving along, um, <laughs> this is all to say the book comes out and says PCs are not crafters. It, it doesn't want you to play a crafter. It does want you to engage with crafting, but it wants you to go out and get materials that you bring to the NPCs. And then the NPC handles the whole thing and you go back to adventuring. Um, D&D has frequently argued that uh, you know crafters PCs don't want to be crafters they want to go do the heroic thing and they want to tell stories about the characters doing the heroic thing and I just think we're leaving leaving out heroic crafting focused characters that show up in a lot of the supporting fiction uh, some of them are more like NPCs and some of them more like PCs. And it just depends on so, the story and the situation. So let, let me, let me introduce uh, for the audience, the three reasons why uh, the, the, the book's authors are proposing that um, adventurers PCs are not crafters here. Here are the reasons. First crafting is slow and non-dangerous. So, it takes too much time and it's not dangerous enough to be worthwhile because their idea is if, if the, if the PC, if any PC is going to gain something, they have to be putting themselves into a risky situation in order to gain something. Otherwise there's no motivation to ever put yourself in a risky situation. So you can't turn crafting into a dangerous activity because you're, you know, at home or in your forge or at your workshop or whatever crafting. So that's not dangerous because that place is in town and the town can't be dangerous by by their by their framework, okay? So you can't make crafting dangerous. So if you gave a, a PC in the world, in the setting, a choice, 
to either go out and adventure and do something really risky and possibly risk your life and die uh, to get a little bit of a resource, or you have them sit at home and craft where it's not dangerous at all and secure a resource, in, in other words, the thing that they crafted, then a smart uh, person in the setting world would choose crafting 100% of the time because it's not dangerous. That's their that's their premise, right? So that's the first thing. It's not dangerous and it's too slow. It'll take up too much game time and it's and it's not dangerous. Second, um, in their words, the base game is geared for combat and adventure, not for crafting. For example, class features almost never provide benefits to crafting, nor do nearly any spells or abilities. Creating that's a because fun, the base game barely has a crafting system, right? And that here to the, tell you. Right, but that's their point, right? Crafting, creating a fun crafting system would be doing so almost entirely from scratch, and would then right. just up, yes. you know, feeling uh, bloated and unnecessary in the context of the larger game because only if you do it games, wrong. But okay, right? But but their premise is, uh, their reasoning is, the game is set for adventuring and combat, not for crafting. So, building any kind of crafting system is going to feel bolted on and not necessarily necessary. Um, so anyway, so now I'm not I'm not saying I agree with either of these. I'm just uh, giving the audience sure. some context to what their what their point is. Third, um, and this is something that you, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because you just actually said something that is not not doesn't track with what they're saying. They're saying this is perhaps the most critical reason why adventurers don't craft, but there is not a strong thematic or narrative basis for craftspeople adventurers. In the right. stories that fantasy games draw from, modern fiction, historical accounts, and ancient mythologies, it is very rare to find heroic figures that craft their own weapons. They wield magic weapons, certainly, and they often must undertake dangerous journeys to find someone to make them, but it's exceedingly uncommon for the hero to literally make their own weapons. I think that's dead wrong. Mm-hmm. That's why I wanted uh, to read it, so that you could right. you could rebut that. Uh, I think that's dead wrong. I think that I want to play Theros Ironfeld as my PC is a totally valid thing to want. Um, I, I come from a whole lineage of games uh, in on the LARP side where PC crafting is a huge thing and being a PC crafter is a huge thing. Uh, and, and the games have done all kinds of different things with their mechanics to try to help crafting be engaging and be something that you want to spend a bunch of time doing, uh, which is not to say you actually go do arts and crafts during events, but more that you have ways to turn, you know, uh, some fairly fungible resources into cool, definite, specific items. Also really specifically in the black company uh, by Glenn Cook, there's a character who spends multiple books crafting a single item, and on the strength of just this one C plot, uh, I built a whole crafting system for Dust to Dust. Uh, that crafting system is called Forge Magic, and the character in the Black Company is One Eye. He makes one spear. It's a really cool spear. He just spends most of the 10 book series improving the spear a little tiny bit at a time. My point is that I think there is something cool to be found and enjoyed in um, playing a crafter who goes out and does adventure stuff to get the materials they need, 
maybe they have to come back to the city to process those materials, right? Because this is the only place where there's the cool magical forge that lets you do that or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, PC alchemists specifically are much more attested in the supporting fiction. Right. Well, I was going to actually bring up alchemists and artificers. Right. Right. Which, so just the fact, and I, and I know an artificer isn't exactly a craftsperson in the way that they're talking about a craftsperson here, but the idea that the artificer class is, is popular actually speaks to the, the fact that some players find it enticing that they should have a PC that can make things. Mm-hmm. And that should not be um, surprising because there's a lot of humans and all humans are different. And so there are people who would enjoy having a really nice, robust crafting system for their PC. And they would that would be part of that, as you're talking about, you know, possibly part of that lonely player fun. Right. Um, Yep. And so, you know, I, I'm just I'm just rep- trying to represent this book as, as it's written at face value. And so they do provide these their reasoning why they're not producing, a you know, or pr- providing for us a crafting system. But they are providing a system through which a party or some members of the West March's troop could actually have an item made. Right. Right. They, they definitely do that. I, I don't argue that I, like, I agree there is a crafting system here, just insisting that it's in the it, it's performed by NPCs and PCs are reliant on those NPCs mm-hmm. feels like separating you from some of the fantasy to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but like, if you really, if you resolve it as no, look, I have to go out and get the materials, which I bring back and then process myself at the cool magic forge. It is fine. Really. It's fine. Right. Well, and the thing is like, um, if, if that PC is only going to adventure uh, once every third session or once every fifth session, then why wouldn't they be doing something off screen during that time? Right. I mean, if they don't have materials, then they're not doing well. But uh, I guess what I'm saying is so uh, maybe uh, one in one of the games, one of the sessions when they're there, that quest that day is that that PC convinces the others, hey, I really want to make this item for future use, but I need this particular uh, uh, the terminology they use. I need this component and I need this other thing that's going to be the catalyst for me enchanting this item. Right. And so I'm going to beseech you to co with me and help me find these items. And then that's one of the adventures or maybe two of them. And then when that, when that, when that party comes back, just in, in West March's style next week, when they adventure, it might be a whole different group of PCs, or it might be some of those and other ones as well, or whatever. And that person, the PC who went out and got the materials now, while they're not on the next adventures, they're at home crafting. Like, I don't, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that violates their ideal of their West March's framework. Yeah. As long as that PC is actually not on the event on the next adventures, they can't be crafting and also be at home in town. Uh, They can't be at home in town crafting and also on the adventure. They have to be doing one or the other. So in fact, their reasoning for the first one, it's, it's slow, doesn't actually stop 
like that's not a good reason not to have it because well so what that it's slow because half the time you're adventuring with a different party anyway right you the pcs are different each game maybe that's part of the premise here so well, what what are the other pcs doing while they're not adventuring well they're doing something well why couldn't one of them be crafting yeah and i think that uh if you got all of the players to kind of uh regard the player base as a a, a sort of extended team together mm -hmm. uh, and you, you added a crafter class that they needed to sometimes kind of plan to carry on an adventure but getting that crafter a bunch of XP was going to help them get cooler things later. That could be a, a really interesting dynamic there too. Yeah. 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 But you know, so what do you think about what they've got here though, as, as a, as a so, quote, quote so, crafting system? <laughs> um, I mean, my, my literal first issue with what they have here is that, uh, their definition of catalyst annoys me. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm sort of a jerk about that because I'm pretty sure by definition a catalyst is not consumed in the reaction. Yes, that's true. That makes me sad that people keep getting that wrong. <laughs> um but that said, um it, it's it's fine, it's good. Um I like you know making stuff and enchanting and I wish a little bit that they had done some more of the work of helping you come up with what was going to be needed rather than the DM will come up with some items and what you have to do to get them. Uh, I think yeah. that's, regrettable. I mean, they, they do provide a list of materials in appendix okay. five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fair. That's, um, but uh, it's it's twenty items, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not an, a long extensive appendix, but each of the items is uh, described, and then it it talks about uh, some special special abilities right. or special and, powers that an item might have if it's created with this as the component. Right, and and all of these components are great for making new items that are not previously attested. Mm -hmm. They're a little confusing for making. Uh, extant magic items from the dmg right and and so and i and yes and i think that's their point right uh i don't i don't think in other words i don't think that's an oversight i think it was on purpose it's fair it, it frustrates me a, a, a little on its face because yeah. like now i'm sort of shopping through a much smaller list rather than thinking of the cool items that you know I'll be finding on my adventures, uh, right. which is another like constant problem with crafting and tabletop games that I think we've talked about on the show before. Um, why would I go on an adventure for materials if I can just go on an adventure for the completed item? Right. There's not a sense of, well, it'll be easier to get the materials because the player doesn't choose that. That's not, it, it, the choices are not framed to the player that way. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, you could start framing them that way. Something like, hey, you know, 
in the course of your adventure to try to get this item, uh, you come across someone who's selling this list of materials. You can go home now, just pay him, you know, most of your money and then you'll still have to craft it. But right. you sure did avoid that danger. And the question becomes, did I also avoid the excitement? Well, maybe. Like, am I spoiling the right. game if I make that choice? Right. I mean, to me, this is about framing, though, right? Like, uh, sure. so in, in in the case where you want to make it um, a, a necessary component of the game where you do not go and quest for magic items, magic items are not something that you go find. Okay, mm-hmm. magic items are something that you have to find someone who can possibly create them or you learn how to create them and then you have to go get the components and create them but there is no sort of list of oh uh, everybody in the in the setting knows what a flame tongue is and i know there's one somewhere i'm going to go find one like that's not that doesn't exist right um and that premise though uh has to be set out in the beginning like you know, you you can have a setting where those sort of stand what I'll what I'll call standard magic items, right? So so those in the DMG, right? Uh, those standard magic items don't just exist all in the world, um, in any in any number. However, sometimes there sometimes there's an artifact, right? And so some sort of magical special pieces do exist, and they're extremely rare, and that's why it's fun when you find one because it's so rare. But things like a plus one sword or a, a, a flame tongue or, uh, you know, a frost brand or something doesn't necessarily just exist just because it's in the DMG. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So if, if you set that premise up, then it, it, it becomes, you know, important for the party to, uh, if someone wants a magic item, they're going to have to sort of conceive of what they want from their magic item and then go, you know, talk to a sage uh, who could say, well, you know, I think you could probably uh, get those magical properties imbued into an item if you had these three components and, you know, this catalyst to use the terminology they use in this book. Um, And if you bring me those uh, and help me, uh, you know, cast the ritual, then we can create this item or something, right? I'm just making it up right now, but you get the idea. Like if that's, if that's how you're going to do magic items, great. Then there's always a motivation to go search for that component that is going to be a stronger motivation than just going and taking a chance on finding a magic item because it's very rare to find a magic item because they just don't exist. But Here's the thing about D&D. Magic items exist in almost every world. And they're yeah. relatively abundant, right? They are relatively abundant. They're not something that is rare. Um even in a low in a lower ma- not not a no magic game, but even in a lower magic game, they're pretty they're pretty common, right? Yeah. Because of the way D&D is structured because even though you know and and, and I know that 5th edition particularly is not written uh, and not not uh, the math isn't written to take into account the the ownership of magic items in any kind, right? But fourth edition is, and third edition is, and second edition. While maybe the math wasn't written uh, to 
to specifically take into account certain magic items. It was just an accepted part of the game that there would be magic items abundantly available. Okay. And even in first edition at higher levels, you know, you were fighting creatures that required a magical weapon in order to even harm or do anything to that creature. So they were pretty abundant there as well. So this is a game which has its basis in magic items being abundant, unless you're playing in a zero magic world, right? Oh, I mean, magic items are abundant in the places that the heroes go. Oh, right, of course, and that, yeah, of course, of course. Uh, you know, not you know, the the uh, the peasant walking down the street isn't carrying a plus one dagger, right? But, um, but those plus one daggers are there for the taking in the most generic dungeon uh, over the hill, right? Right. So. Sure. Uh, so if that is the premise, then it's really, like you said, then you have this sort of weird tension between, well, if I can just go find it and honestly, folks, it's fun to find a magic item in a chest, right. Or defeat the, 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 the cobalt chief who is using a magic item and then take it off of him and find out it really is a magic item. Right. For sure. That's fun. If you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's no magic items, well, it actually takes some of the fun away, takes some of the, the, the promise or the, the sort of the, the mystery of what am I going to find when I go into this dungeon? So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a real tension that exists there between, you know, trying to say, well, uh, crafting, I sort of, I sort of lost the thread here, but I think you, you know what I'm saying, right? That yeah. having a crafting system is fun, but, you're right. If you're going out to get the components when you could just be going out to get the item, why would you why wouldn't you skip the middleman? Skip the components, skip the crafter, just go get the item. Right. And as to your point about you can't just make a plan to go out and get the flame tongue, right? Mm-hmm. Um I I think that is half true specifically in the West Marches, because gathering rumors and learning about places you haven't been yet is regarded as a, a central part of play. Right. Right. And when I, when I was right. saying that, what I, what I meant was if you're setting the premise in your setting right at the beginning, that there aren't magic items out there, you're not just going to go get a magic item. You're not just going to be able to say, Hey DM, I saw this flame tongue thing. And I, I think my PC would really want one. Can we for go sure. on a quest? Can we right. look for rumors? Can we do all that to try to find out where one is and then go get it? You know, if you set it up right away at the very beginning of the campaign, that that's not something that we do in this game or this setting, then that's not available. Right. But you're absolutely yeah. right. You know, searching around and trying to find clues and, and finding rumors and uh, talking to passing travelers and finding uh, you know clues it's etched into the walls of the second level of the dungeon right oh yep. the flame tongue is on level 10 you know i mean that's that's the pure like D. that's like D in its essence because then you go oh wait there's a flame tongue on level 10 we got to get good enough to get down to level 10 right Right. So, so I have two more things I want to say about this, and then we can uh, move on to a little bit more about crafting. Okay. Right? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, no, it's good. Like this is absolutely the conversation that yeah. I love having. Um, so, um, first is this is edition wars. We talk about other editions. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the alternative, where you do look up a magic item and think, "Hey, this sounds awesome. I want one of these. How can I get it?" Is 
really explicitly how Forth had handled its parcels. Right. And uh, it was one of the few things about Forth Ed that really, like, just dissolved my joy mm-hmm. as, a, as a DM, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't enjoy it. We talked about this yeah. uh, with Sage, I think, uh, last year. It really dissolves my joy when players are just planning out a build based on the magic items they expect to find. Mm-hmm. Um, the Which, other, I know that was the expectation in fourth edition, but I got rid of that real early on. Yeah. There yeah, was consternation early, right? It was like, okay, well, and then there's all these articles. Well, do you, do you let them give you a desire list, right? Or a want list, or do you tell them, you know, I mean, it, it, and, and ultimately it was like, throw that idea out. That's not how my game works. <laughs> right. Yeah. But anyway, so my other is, is thinking about a, uh, a third edition game I played in well, uh, or kind of evolved game I played in where, um, I tried to do this at one point, right? My character used a pretty unusual weapon. And so it was pretty tough to find a magical upgrade for my plus one dire one. And at one point we're in this city talking about things we want to do. And I talk about wanting to go to research rumors of an upgrade, like some better, uh, great hammer I could be wielding, and I, as best I can recall, I damn near got laughed out of that table. <laughs> I hurt my feelings a little bit because it, it's not actually that unreasonable, and I'll stand by that anyway. I got that off my chest, so uh, that brings us to craftsperson features. Uh, we get into a bunch of different kinds of individual crafters. Well, so um, wait, so back up. So, oh, sorry. so for the audience, it, it talks about, you know, at, when it's talking about how adventurers don't craft, it says, but, you know, they can know people in town in the, in their safe place that do craft or that are artificers. And so then it's talking about, okay, well, how do you go about creating this person and putting them in your setting, whether they're, you know, living outside of town or in town. And so then that's where we get to what you're, what you're talking about. Yep. Um, so there's, there's a you know, big list of different types of crafters of items and then uh, purveyors of mounts and vehicles and then magical services. Um, I would suggest that maybe the identification magical service needs a little more meat in its bones to like, really live and breathe in 5e, but that's okay. Sorry. Uh, I'm glad we're not in the days where it uses a hundred gold piece pearl every time you cast the spell. I mean, yeah. So there's the, there's a weird balance, right? Where you want to be able to identify an item uh, in a way that does not cause you to have to equip it and attune to it and get cursed uh, if it happens to be cursed, but also uh, in a way that, isn't just sort of here's 50 cents let me you know can you do this service for me right um because that's a little bit too easy right uh and and this doesn't really hit that balance very well it's a little bit you know it's like let me go to the corner id shop right and give you my item for an hour and then you pay you 50 gold and you're going to tell me what it does um 
but you know, I, I have uh, issues with fifth editions uh, identification process anyway. Um, oh, for sure. Know, just for my own, you know, for my own personal game, it doesn't doesn't work so easily as it does in in rules as written. Um, right. It could said to be more engaging. Like yeah. what I do in my game, the identify spell is actually uh, a divination spell that conjures something. What it conjures is a spirit of information. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not a lot more, but you have a conversation with a you know, very minor NPC. Right. And that's just, it's more engaging, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think my players have always liked that. I usually let them ask some like miscellaneous questions mm-hmm. while the NPC is there. The NPC sure. doesn't care. Fine. Right. Yep. Yeah. Um, I I have a I I'm, I go very old school on this. Um, if it's a potion, they can uh, you know put a little bit on their finger and touch it, and you know and and you know taste it with their tongue and and not use the whole potion, and uh, and and maybe they can get some elements of it. And if they've had it before, they'll know what it is. If they haven't, they now get some properties. They know the color. They know how the viscosity of it. You know how thick it is. They know the taste of it, the smell of it. And um, they might get an idea about what it's going to do because they'll get a tiny little bit of that if they put a little bit on their tongue, um, which I'm just imagining. Yeah. Oh, 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 that was perfume. That's perfume yeah. on my tongue. Oh, I'm dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And so by the same token, if it happens to be poisonous, they'll know right away that it's probably not good for them. They won't know how strong or what type of poison unless they have experience with that, but they'll know not to drink it. Right. So, so they don't have yeah. to kill themselves to find out it's poison. Um, but, uh, you know, that adds a little bit of, you know, they don't, can't just automatically know, uh, by looking at something, what it is, um, the same with weapons, right? Like, um, yes, of course, if you attune to it, uh, you're going to learn something about it. Um, and, uh, then you still have to use it in order to learn all of its properties, especially if it's a sort of more than just a generic magic item. Right. Because I think that there is something that goes into, um, learning what your item does, right. Uh, you, you, to me, it feels a little bit cheap to just say, oh, I'm, I'm going to attune to that and identify it. Suddenly, I know every property of it. Like, it just, it just feels cheap to me. Right. Um, I get you. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, here again, I think we get into specific individual crafts. And I am the kind of person who would enjoy, hey, once you shop from this merchant a lot, they might get a better thing. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. because their business has grown, or you know, you back them to expand their business so that they can sell you the cooler thing now, or you give them a research grant. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the different ways of like improving the NPC. Not all of them is it obvious what you'd improve, uh, but that's okay. <laughs> um, then we get into uh, how the materials scale based on the the level of the monster. And it's really, really important to me to keep this behind the screen and GM's eyes only in terms of uh, the material tiers and uh, making it explicitly tied to the CR of the monster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I, as a player, I don't ever want to be thinking, hey, like the, the rare bird that we tracked down 
that isn't actually dangerous at all can't have anything cool because it isn't dangerous. Right. 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 Um, this also, by the way, goes back to the um, in chapter two when it talked about surveying and hunting, and there was harvesting uh, units of material. Right? Remember we talked about that yep. uh, from a particular creature, and this is where that sort of dovetails into this because you're going to use yep. some of those units of material as either a component or a catalyst for uh, the creation of whatever this magic. Uh, item is that you're wanting right <laughs> he said unit <laughs> uh, but yes absolutely um that's what this was about and this is also as a result what surveying was about mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right like the, the whole deal of just learning where to go to get the thing this is the payoff step right 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 uh so they do talk about uh, craftsperson tiers, uh, and that's cool. Craft, craft people can become better at their trades. So I retract my point. They cover that a bit. Uh, the player has to the players have to facilitate their growth uh, by maybe recovering special tools. Uh, mm-hmm. Dark Souls definitely likes that nod there. That's a thing. Uh, artifacts are the means of power and granting them to the craftsperson. Very good. Yep, I like that. Um, and all those different embers that you collect in Dark Souls 1, I think that's great and lovely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, there's some guidelines for designing additional special materials. Uh, and I, I don't know, I, I criticized their special materials earlier. I should walk that back. I love cool mystic materials, right? They're the lifeblood of how crafting worked in my LARP. Right. So mm-hmm. I love that kind of thing. Um, well, I, I just mean, would you, like you to get plugged into the rest of the magic item system. Right. And you didn't like the name that they, cho- that they chose. Right. It's, um, it's fine. It's yeah. Fine. Uh, so, I mean, I'm just saying like, don't, don't, don't act like your critique was, this is garbage, you know, ball it up and throw yeah. it out. Um, you just, you know, said the name isn't the greatest and, and some of these things need to dovetail into other things a little bit better and that's okay. Yeah. I think it's a fair uh, critique. Um, I'm not sure that a person who isn't so tuned into crafting systems, right, is going to care about those things. Oh, sure. I, I absolutely agree that this is something I care about because it is my deal, mm-hmm. not because mm-hmm. I am a normal person. <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm not, and I, I'm saying that not in a way to discount your observations, but just pointing out to the audience, you know, dear listener, all I'm saying is that you might not find the things that Brandis finds problematic to be problematic. And you might not find the things that I find problematic to be problematic because one of the things about crafting systems, because they are so rare, right. And because they're never, they're almost never the central point of a, of a, of a game, uh, at least not a D and D like game, then it, sometimes you don't really have a large basis to pull from in terms of making these decisions. And what they present here is not half bad. Right. I, I agree with that. Um, with with all the, well, I wish this were a little bit more that I've said, this is still going to be fine for the great majority of people. Mm-hmm. And my my desire for more is just me. Right, right. Of course. If you are a hardcore like, fan of crafting, you're probably going to be a little dissatisfied. If you are uh, 
a normal fan of crafting, it's probably going to be fine. If you mm-hmm. hate crafting, right. Jeff, uh, <laughs> you should just not pay attention to this chapter. It's intentionally optional. Well, yeah, and and there and there's even a, one of the red sidebars which says, "Hey, look, this is completely not required. If you don't like it, just ignore it." Yep, that is for you, Jeff Greiner. <laughs> Jeff Greiner, the man who hates crafting. <laughs> All right, so uh, ready to move on then? I am. Okay, so the next section is regions. Uh, this now could be, you know, this, this chapter is really big. And I think uh, if they want to have a chapter just called world building, they could have sub chapters. <laughs> so they could have yeah. made the town part one, and this would be part two. Regions would be part two. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's funny you mentioned that because that's so much how the DMG was structured. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Like the, you have part one of the DMG that is their world building chapter. Mm-hmm. That's this. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it, yeah. You, yeah. You've got to cover the mm-hmm. town and regions <laughs> right. and factions and dungeons. Yeah. Like, yep. That. Well, and in here though, so we're going to have regions. And then when we get to, when we get to factions, that for me would be part three of this chapter. For and sure. then the dungeons yep. would be part four of this chapter. So this chapter is actually four chapters. <laughs> Um, but mushed into one. So, so regions, what do you think about this part? Um, well, I, I think it's in a very real sense, one of the two most important things in terms of player experience in the whole book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that you need to deeply absorb everything here and really get to how you're going to implement it. And, you've got to get kind of even more nitty gritty with implementation for yourself than the text does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's saying something, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and the other yeah. section you have to get down to that level with is dungeons, mm-hmm. but that's normal for D and D. So whatever. Right. And so that's kind of what I was going to say about this is I think the reason why this is really important to sort of absorb everything that's talking about here is this, it's talking about a region as um a chunk of terrain, a chunk of material, a chunk of space that is distinctly discrete from the other chunks of space on the map, right? And uh, when the party is going from one place to another, from, from one region to another, they need to realize it intrinsically. Just like you would realize that you were going into a forest if you were coming out of a grassland and going into a forest, you would know immediately you are now in a different biome, you're in a completely different environment, you're in a different place, my friend, and that is a different region in Westmarch's parlance. And the reason why it's so important is because those two things have very different qualities and very different danger and are very supposed to be unique, right? And what it amounts to is just your players need to feel the territory. Mm-hmm. Like Again. feeling the world right. deeply is basically the number one job description of a West Marches DM. Right. And it goes back to what we were talking about in the in either the first or second episode, where we talked about how important it is to give the, the players information about what they see, 
right? Landmarks yep. about what they see and specific, not just, oh, you're in a grassland, but specifics about what they see around them so that they can integrate those into their experience and into the PC's experience. And this is sort of just leaning on that really heavily. And the reason that I say that this is important here is not just that it's important in the West Marches parlance, but the fact that a lot of times travel over land is hand-waved in D&D. &D. If, if the point of the travel is just to go from point A to point B, and they made this point early in this book, and we probably talked about it, but I'm, I'm bringing it up again because it's a really important point that the travel is the thing. Th this, is, this is sort of like, um, you know, uh, the, the, the Lord of the Rings, right? 80% mm -hmm. of that is travel. They're traveling. And it's Absolutely. the things that happen to them along the way, if not more than 80%, right? It's the things that happen to them along the way. And that's the feel that West Marches is going for. It's not just about getting to the temple. It's about going to the temple and what happens as you're going. And you might not get to the temple because stuff happens. And it's important to work that idea in to the entire you know, into your mindset as the DM. And the way, part of the way you do that is by splitting the map into regions that are unique and separate and discrete, and that you can then describe to the players in a way that lets them know that they're unique and separate and distinct so that they know when they're going from one to the other, because that's going to signal something to them, either danger level or that they're getting close to something or that something might happen or they need to be more vigilant or whatever it is. Yeah. Those are all the things that are going to be, you know, telegraphed to the players so, without you so, saying, well, now you're moving from screen one to screen two. So now you're in the, the screen for level three to five characters, not level one to three characters. You know? Oh, yeah. So so I'd say that you need to be using some of the the skill set of an art director for an open world game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. You need to have in your imagination something like uh, when they move into this region, the color palette shifts. And I absolutely love the advice they're giving in the, uh, under the unique header uh, mm -hmm. for having a single phrase that captures a region for you. I think that's incredibly strong mm -hmm. as an approach because I mean, this is hard stuff. Art director is a real job that does hard work, right. Uh, right? Because they have to help make each region of this massive game feel vitally different, um, and they need to not be repeating themselves. And that's mm -hmm. actually hard work. Right. But you know, you you need to do in words and maybe a few player handouts what the AD is doing with uh, a full 3D rendering suite, mm -hmm. suite right? Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. a tall order. Right. Um, and you need to be consistent about it, uh, which is anything, if anything, is even worse because you don't have a, a world-building engine uh, like a video game studio for sure does. Um, on the other hand, you have more forgiving players than uh, video game players, so there's right, that. Right, right. So let me just... just um, as as I like to do, let me read this passage real quick to the Please audience. Um, each region should be memorable. 
With only a brief description, players should start recognizing the areas they've been to before. In order to best achieve this, this region should have a key, each region should have a key phrase, a short descriptive phrase that is used every time that region is visited. For example, for relatively ordinary forest, the phrase might be narrow gray pine trees. For a range of haunted hills, the phrase might be jagged crags uh, dusted with mist. For an ancient battlefield, the phrase might be ashen soil hiding shattered bones. When players enter this region, you should work the key phrase into your description of the region itself. You can and should expand the description beyond that key phrase alone, but it is critical to include it because as players hear the key phrase used over and over again, they will associate it with the region. As soon as they enter that region, even if they got lost, they will know where they are. And you're doing that not just using the phrase. You don't, you don't just say uh, narrow gray pine trees and that's it, right? Yep. But that's the key phrase that will start reverberating in their head. And that's going to be different from any of the other forested areas they've been to. And it will act as the trigger for them to be ready to determine what their next, next uh, you know, actions are based on their knowledge of the environment. At first, they don't have any knowledge. And then as they play the game, they will then have that knowledge. Right. And here I would honestly suggest using something like um, an Excel spreadsheet to just help you create your initial blurbs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm to make sure you don't repeat yourself because as many regions as you're going to need to run West marches, it'd be easy. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, But if you've played a bunch of the kinds of video games that West marches is drawing on uh, any of the Soulsborne games, especially Elden Ring, um, Breath of the Wild, uh, Darkest Dungeon, you know, think about, how they're using lighting and color palettes and uh, terrain and uh, flora and fauna to tell the story of the place. And Mm -hmm. maybe you will start to realize some things about the game that you've been playing for all this time that you didn't think about before because the AD's job is also to stop you from focusing on it because it needs to fade into the background. It literally is the background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at the same time, the regional material, the regional description and the regional information that the players are getting from the DM has to also telegraph information about the danger yep. that is inherent in that region. And uh, I, I, you particularly like what it says in the unique section. I particularly like what it says in the dangerous section because it talks about telegraphing this information to the players. Oh, it's, it's super good. In, in a way that, again, you're not just saying, well, this is for a region for players of uh, PCs with levels four to five. And, you know, it's not about that. It's about having cohesive types of, of keywords and, and having, uh, if you if you're using you know wandering encounters or random encounters, having those, you know, not just oh the thing appears in front of you and that's a random encounter, but the the party should get clues about what they might be finding ahead of them if they keep going in that direction. Uh, which is yep. really important. You know, the th- <laughs> the reason I like this section is because you should be doing this with your regular game, even if you're not running West Marches. This should be what you're doing. This is beautiful advice. Well, a lot of this book winds up being beautiful advice mm-hmm. for all forms of D&D. It's just that uh, it is more central 
and and crucial to the West Marchers experience. Right. Uh, even than other games, but this is a really good DMG too, y'all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not a joke. Yep. Um, but everything about danger level, like figuring out how to communicate that, is a tall order, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that you don't have in most D D that you have in video games is failure as a teacher. Because player dies in Breath of the Wild, guys, it's fine. I I, I just go back to it's fine, mm-hmm. right? Um, player dies in Elden Ring, yeah, fifth time in the last ten minutes. What? Right, right. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but that's that's how they figure out that they aren't supposed to be there. So it is more important to develop your language with your players and get the information across without being explicit that they're in over their heads. Um, yeah, they or, need they need to have some sense of that. They need to have some idea of that based on the clues that you've given them, not you telling them directly outright. For sure. And, and as much as possible, uh, have the first couple of NPCs they encounter be less than motivated to give chase. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. when the fight starts to go bad, they can bail. Right. Right. And they also can hear, I mean, there's other ways to telegraph these things, right? They can hear, oh, well, you know, from two or three different NPCs can tell them, well, you know, nobody really goes over to that forest because it's super dangerous. There's there's some sort of creature that lives in there and they've tainted the whole thing. So, you know, just stay away from there. It's probably not safe. Yep. And that just that, of course, now the PCs are going to say, oh, well, we can be the big damn heroes and we can go off and we can actually slay that thing, whatever it is. But they at least know there's danger now so that when they get there, when they get into that region and they start getting other clues, it might dawn on them, oh, this is what we're up against. Okay, it is really dangerous. It, they may be very quickly discovering that uh, West Marches is not a game for big damn heroes. It is a game for rogues. Hopefully they discover that quickly. Yeah. There's no guarantee, uh, though. The, the, they could, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I think there's always an okay time to say, so tell me about your backup character concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, always a favorite phrase of mine. Yeah. I, um, I, I, there's, a, um, there's a guy who runs a stream. He, it's a blue box RPG. And uh, he uh, he always one of the things that he says is he he tells his players you always need to have one or two backup characters, yeah. and they they need to be fleshed out enough that you can bring them into the game if your primary character dies, but they can't be so fleshed out that you're just waiting in the wings for them to for your primary character to die so that the second one can come in because you're really enamored with them right now right like it needs to be yeah. a balanced sort of thing where uh, you have that as a as a literal backup because it is very highly likely that your characters might die uh, because you know sometimes uh, bad choices bad decisions and bad dice rolls uh, go all together and a PC dies. And instead of sitting out the rest of the game, you've got a backup character. And one of the things he says is as the DM, he always has a way to bring that character in relatively quickly, not immediately. They don't just pop into existence. It's not, you know, like that, but in, in a way that makes sense with the story. Yep. 
in West Marches, it's just, well, um, you know, either you had some hirelings and maybe one of those steps up and that person plays a hireling or something for the rest of the session, or it's time to go back home because we just discovered that this area is way too dangerous for us. And so we're going to end the session and go home. Uh, and then, then that's where the, the new character can come in and meet everybody. Right. So uh, there's a lot of ways to do it, um, but it's just being cognizant that that is a real thing, right? It's not about, and this is the thing. It's not about being a killer DM and saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm really a hard ass and I'm going to kill the PCs. It's more about expectations. If you're getting telegraphed a lot of information about how dangerous this area is and you are not heeding those warnings and your PC dies, this should not be a surprise to you. And yep. it's not because the DM is unfair and killed you on purpose. It's because you made choices that were to ignore the danger that was being thrown at you and all the information that was being thrown at you. And so therefore the PC put themselves in a, in a really dangerous situation and did not live through it. That's not to say that every place you go, that's going to happen. Then there is no game, right? If you, if everywhere you go, the DM just kills you, then there's no game. So I'm not saying I'm not advocating for being a really deadly DM in that way. I'm just no, saying no. there's a balance there between telegraphing danger but you don't stop you you don't stop the pcs from going into that forest because there's a really bad danger there that's really too strong for them you don't it's not a video game you don't just stop being able to run further and go into the forest right until you're uh, the appropriate I, level i will say that there there is a right time and place to Check in and make sure the players remember what they learned last week. Absolutely. Oh, or yes, last for sure. month yes, or whatever. Yes, for sure. Yes, for sure. Absolutely, yes. Uh, but uh, I, ultimately, I, I come down on and have always come down on the side of once a stake is established, you have to carry it through. Sorry. Yeah. That's yeah. – like, There's there are right times and places to – have something lucky and merciful come through, uh, such as, oh, hey, we helped this person way back when, and they showed up to help us at a, a key moment that we didn't expect. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But if something like that is not available and the PCs knew what they were getting into and did it anyway, I mean, sorry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but that is another reason that West Marches isn't for everybody, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. So, um, ready for the next section? Yeah. So we get into some uh, some content on the environment, uh, which uh, the, the initial table is really getting specific on uh, different biomes um, and the difficulties for gathering food and water and navigating and traveling for all of those biomes. And I think that's great. Uh, I think really one of our could have gone to the chapter previous. Right. Well, I, I was going to say one, I think one of our complaints uh, about that previous chapter was that they didn't give us this information at that point. And so now we're running into a little bit of an organizational issue here where it's like it's just friction for us as people reading straight through right as a reference work putting it in regions makes as much sense as putting it mm -hmm. in sure um uh, like uh, scavenging for food it's fine right well and so the thing is like this is the perfect fodder for okay i'm going to print that page out and cut that table out and it's going on my dm screen 
right? Or 100% in, in my notes, yes. right? Like that's the sort yep. of thing. So you're not necessarily going to be flipping through looking for this thing because you're going to already have it prepped. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and there's discussions of more environments than are on this table, uh, combining environments. Like, this is how this book is addressing my desire for uh, wilder, weirder environments, like I talked about last mm -hmm. uh, last episode. Yeah, it's still very uh, non-fantastical, uh, right? Like it's it's a very mundane. Sure. I don't mean that in a negative way. Sometimes mundane is used as a negative modifier, but the, in this case, it's not. I don't mean it as a negative. I just mean that they're not going for the all-out fantastical. Right. They're um, establishing the baseline, right. but the green sidebar generating more environments mm -hmm. starts to touch mm -hmm. on what a more fantastical uh, forest of stone would be like. Right. And I think that's right. cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and then in, in, in the next two sections, climate and landforms, again, the tables include very sort of mundane items, but yep. that generating more environments sidebar applies to those as well. So, you know, it, it's fine. It's yeah, um, I, I feel like uh, there was some help in the DMG on some of this, um, but thinking about climate, I'm just coming off of writing a big collection of uh, weird weather for a freelance client, and mm -hmm. so uh, I'm very excited about this idea, like <laughs> weird magical right. weather. Yeah, 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 nice. Yeah. Um, but discussion of landforms and structures, I think, I think it's a little too easy to sort of have your land be too flat, uh, and land rises, mm -hmm. uh, sheer cliffs that you need to find a different way around. Um, ideally ways you can open up shortcuts by doing something the hard way so you can later do it the easy way mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. all right it's all crucial parts of um dark souls level design and elden ring design so you know think about that if you can mm -hmm. and then it, it has it also has a sidebar about the idea that uh bigger is older is badder and uh talking about something that is really really large like a uh mountain that pierces the clouds a bridge that crosses an ocean a pit that pierces the earth's crust they're all huge and they're all old and they're all very dangerous and the party should understand that. all the players should understand that big things are old things and old things are dangerous in this world and that's part of that telegraphing right like this is setting up some uh premises that you know it's telling us in the text okay you need to be telegraphing things to your to your players but also i think you need to telegraph some things before the game right mm -hmm. so when you're pitching this game to your players or when you're setting this up and you're gathering your players when you do the proverbial session zero you should be telegraphing this information to them as well as a baseline for what they should be expecting it should not be a surprise to them that an enormous pit that goes down 12 miles into the earth's core is dangerous down there right but you know, we're talking about D&D. &D. It's a fantasy game. They may not realize, they may see that you telling them that as, oh, well, that's where the dungeon is. That's an invitation for us to go down there right now at first level. Yep. 
And what you're trying to telegraph to them is, no, 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 that's way too dangerous for you probably right now. So you should just barely skirt the edges of it if you even go near it. And you need to be able to telegraph that to them even before the game starts about certain aspects of the setting. And one of those aspects is something that is huge is also probably old, and something that is old is most likely very dangerous. Even for higher level characters, it's going to be very dangerous. So for low levels, it's deadly. Yep. And and this, again, is something that you definitely would recognize from Dark Souls and Breath of the Wild mm-hmm. and Elden mm-hmm. Ring, um, right. that, that bigger is older is better. Uh, also, I think we can safely recognize it in the uh, hosts of your edition wars, right? Mm-hmm. Sam, the the older and much better of the <laughs> two of us, superior in all dangerous regards. Uh, I don't know that that is true, but Sam um, is where the interesting treasure is. Uh, his house is the one you want to no, I mean no, uh, no, 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 I don't think so. No. <laughs> I do not have a mound of gold in my house, okay? I am not I'm not sitting on it and uh threatening people with my dragon breath. I will just point out that is someone it was what someone who had a mound of gold in his house would say. <laughs> this is probably true. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then we get to modifiers and, um, this, this is really just a a continuation of the previous section. So it's talking about, uh, modifiers, um, that uh, modifiers to the environment. So, uh, it's a table and it's basically, this is, this is part of what's allowing you to make the, the terrain a little bit more interesting, right? So for example, um, uh, the, the the like uh, if you roll a two on this table the the, the modifier that it that it gives you is every few hours sudden lightning strikes near the party right so when they mm-hmm. enter this region when they go into this area every couple of hours there's just a random lightning strike it doesn't hurt anything doesn't kill anyone it's not doing damage there's no there's no rules mechanic on here it's just that's that area yep and the thing and is that this is a great table it's a great table it's a great table but the thing is that they should hear about the fact that there's this area where random lightning strikes before they enter that area, right? Yep. And they should see those if they start getting closer to it, right? So this is this is one of those things where this table, even though it's a random table, is really used for prep. And so when when you are when when you are sort of filling out your regions, right? When you're trying to describe your regional effects and you roll on here. Um, if you, uh, if you roll a nine and it says misleading waystones and road signs abound, like the local populace or anyone who's traveled in this area is going to know that there are misleading signs in there. We don't know why they are there. Maybe there's some pixies around that, that keep coming and changing the signs. And am, maybe, maybe there's some hill giant or something that comes around and keeps rearranging the rocks. Cause that's their I, territory. I am convinced this is another dark souls reference because in dark <laughs> souls mes- messages from other players, mm-hmm are not reliable. Mm-hmm. I, I would just like okay. to remind everyone, <laughs> try finger, butthole. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway. <laughs> For people who play Elden Ring, that's hilarious, all right? Um, so, <laughs> so, I wish I had a giant butthole. <laughs> I'm, I'm done, I swear. 
It's okay. There's going to be lightning striking uh, near you in a minute. That checks out. Um, That's uh, Stormhill. I'm in that region right now <laughs> in my place of Elden Ring. It's horrible. Um, but in, in any case, so th- this is the sort of uh, list of fantastical things that could be happening in this area that, uh, that Brandis was lamenting was not in the previous section. Um, things like uh, geysers bursting through the earth very often in unpredictable locations, or uh, anytime blood is spilled on the ground, it draws in ravenous beasts, uh, or a ghostly whispering uh, suffuses the region. Anyone there is unable to escape it. Um, you know, things like that, right? Just, just kind of these. Uh, they're they're relatively harmless items, right? But they are a big enough deal that the party would probably hear rumors of them or would see them as they're coming up to the region or would have to figure out what's happening in that region that to even notice it, like the road signs being wrong and whatnot. Um, but also that could be something where that's going to be the impetus for the for the party to be like, wait, we got to figure out what this is because we need to fix this or we need to know how to avoid getting damaged by this item. And so if you're going to roll one of these things and you're going to make this part of the modifier or the the element, an element of that region, you also need to be able to think about what happens if the players pursue it as kind of a quest, right? Like they're kind trying to pursue fixing it or or finding out more about it so they can avoid it. It also definitely makes me think of uh, the Shadowlands in Legend of the Five Rings. Mm-hmm. The the corruption that builds up that is only right. uh, blocked by Jade. Right. Yep. Um, but yeah, like, I absolutely love this kind of thing. I mean, I, I would pay cash money for uh, this to be a you know D five hundred table. Mm-hmm. And not not some piddly D twenty table. Um, I'm not actually criticizing the table. It's everything right. that this chapter needs it to be. Right. Um, you might want more than twenty of these, and that's reasonable. But mm-hmm. by the right. time and you've burned through about nineteen of them, you should be able to write your own. Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. As an exemplar list, right? As as an as yeah. a list of what good ones are, because there's a lot of good ones in here. Uh, you can learn how to then construct ones of your own. So, yep, yeah. Uh, but modifiers is difficulty level and modifiers is narrative are both great points, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Great points. Yep. Um, so yep. we're going to call it here. Uh, we're actually in the middle of a, uh, a top, top level header within the chapter, but we feel like the next section, Inhabitants, is going to really fit nicely into talking about factions. And then we'll talk about dungeons, and that will finish chapter three. But like I said up front, this chapter is intense and varied, and everything here is worth discussing because it's such a distilled discussion of uh, expert-level jamming. Um, so this is just an amazing text to me. I'm, I'm deeply impressed with what they have to say. Yeah. Um, if anything, I would like to see about 10% more discussion of why, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're saying the right thing. I think you have to have been around for a while to understand why you're doing all this work because right. it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is and, great for a, a GM that likes lonely fun now. Right, and you know they could also give a little bit of discussion about how to do this piecemeal, 
right? Sure. Because trying to do it all at once, it's going to get overwhelming if you're not used to this kind of, of DMing and doing this sort of thing. And, you know, sometimes taking off a little chunk of something and practicing doing that thing in your game for a couple of weeks is is going to integrate it into your way of doing things. And then you can take on the next chunk and then you take on the next chunk. And then by the time you've done most of them, now you're ready to start a West Marches campaign or now yeah. you, know, you might not even want to do a West Marches campaign, but now you have improved your DMing and they don't really offer any advice like that. I was going to say not many styles of game want more pre-production than a West Marches game. Right. Uh, right. And the, the conceit is that it will all pay off in making the game just dead simple to run thereafter. Right. And my, uh, my premise here though, or my, or my, I guess my, my theory here is that or my conjecture maybe is a better word. My conjecture is that following this advice, the things like telegraphing this information and having regions that are distinct where the, the party can learn about them in different ways that stuff is good for any game, not just a West Marches game. And so oh, 100%. I wish that they, and, and that's kind of where I was going is I know that that's not the point of this book. The point of this book is to make you want to play a West Marches game and teach you how to run it. Um, but because it's so packed with really good information that fits for any game, I really, I want this as a, here's how to start integrating this right now, even if you're not running West Marches page at the end of every chapter here, right? Yep. That's legit. But, you know, it's also not really a, a legitimate criticism of the text itself. It's just sort of what I think would be also helpful to a lot of other people. So, yeah, I mean, the book is, as I suggested earlier, just a breath away from being a fully fledged DMG2. Yeah, it really, it really is good. It really is good. So, I think that's going to end up this episode then um, for us today. So, where can people find you online, Sam? Uh, you can find me on uh, rpgmusings.com or on twitter.com slash DM Samuel. I've been, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ramping up for a, a sort of a Greyhawk game. So I've been writing a little bit about Greyhawk on my, on my blog. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. Uh, that's exciting. Uh, what system yeah. are you going to use? Uh, Castles and Crusades. Nice. Of course. Right. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm, I'm running it in Almore, which is an area that uh, can, can actually use a West Marches framework. So I'm kind of doing a West Marches thing. Hey, so, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah. So it's really good. It'll be fun. Uh, what about you, sir? Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. Uh, I also write for tribality.com. My personal blog is brendastoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. All right, folks, stay well. <laughs>